Our scripture this morning will be from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 15 through 26. Acts 1, 15 through 26. This can be found on page 1051 of the Pew Bibles, if you want to follow along. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us, accompanied us during all the time that the Lord went, out, went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become a, with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two men you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from Judas, turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered among the eleven apostles. There once were three sisters, three elderly sisters, who all lived together in one house. And one evening, the oldest sister ran a bath and was getting ready to, to step into the bathtub. She inserted her foot, and then she yelled out to her sisters, Was I getting in, or was I getting out of the bath? The middle-aged sister heard her elderly sister and said, I don't know. I'll come up there and help you. And so she started climbing the stairs and she got about halfway up the stairs and she paused. And she said, was I going up the stairs or was I going down the stairs? Well, the youngest of the three sisters was sitting in the kitchen at the table drinking some coffee and listening to her, her two sisters try to figure out what they were doing. And she said, I hope I never become as forgetful as them, knock on wood, and she hit on the table. And then she yelled out, I'll come help both of you as soon as I see who's at the door. <laughs> you know, it's very easy for us to forget what we're doing, isn't it? It's very easy for us to forget where we came from. And this morning, as we introduce a new series of lessons, in fact, this morning I'm introducing our last series of the year, because I know it's just September, but this series is going to take us through the end of December. But don't worry, there'll be a couple of breaks in there. 
As we introduce this new series, I want you to think back to when we introduced this go and do theme. Now, I don't know how many of you remember that because it was December of 2020 and we've tried to forget 2020. But back in December of last year, we introduced this theme, Go and Do, that was going to guide much of our study and much of our activity for this new year. And when we introduced the Go and Do theme, we appealed to the book of Acts. We appealed particularly to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, where Jesus gave his disciples the following instructions. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we took that assignment that Jesus gave the disciples in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and from it we learned two important things. First, we learned what we need to be doing. Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses. That's the job assignment. That's the task. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be witnesses. And we defined a witness as someone who testifies on another's behalf in order to prove the veracity of a particular claim. And then we look back at John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, where Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And our observation was this. The way we're going to be the witnesses that Jesus has called us to be is through love. It is by love that we're going to demonstrate irrefutably that we are his disciples. Love is the chosen means by which Jesus said our relationship to him can be identified. So the way we serve as Jesus' witness is through our demonstration of love to whomever we come in contact with. And then when we looked at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, the other observation we made, not just what we should be doing, but where we should be going. Because Jesus identified some specific locations in that passage. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus' words indicated a missional agenda that progressed outward from the disciples' home base of Jerusalem through the Roman province of Judea, through the culturally diverse region known as Samaria, then to the rest of the entire world. And from those instructions, we noted that every location is important to Jesus. And that means that going and doing doesn't require us to enter a different community, a different culture, or a different country. The area to which we go can simply be the world outside our front door. Because wherever there are souls that are lost, there are disciples needed to go. So that was our starting point. That we're expected to be witnesses. That's our job assignment. That's what we're supposed to do. And that we're to go everywhere and anywhere that the gospel needs to be heard. But if you look in Acts chapter 1, we did not read this a moment ago, but if, if you look immediately after those instructions, you look at verses 9 through 11, and here's what the first disciples initially did. 
Look at it, Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. When Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Do you notice what's happening here? After the disciples witnessed Jesus' ascension, they stood there gazing at heaven. That means they were standing there staring at where Jesus just departed. All of a sudden, a couple of messengers suddenly appear and challenge them to get to work. In other words, the disciples were so busy staring at the sky that they failed to get moving on their mission. And we're not unlike those original disciples. We are quite capable of standing still instead of striking out. So we challenged ourselves with this theme because we didn't want to be found guilty of standing and staring when we should be going and doing. And with that background to our theme in mind, today I want to initiate a study of the book of Acts. Because the remainder of Acts tells the story of the infant church's fulfillment of those original go-and-do instructions. Now, we're not going to cover the entirety of Acts between now and the end of the year. We're really just going to focus on the first 12 chapters of Acts, the first half of Acts. And we're going to look at the original goers and the original doers and see what we can learn from them and how we can apply those lessons to our own lives so that we can fulfill go-and-do assignment all the more. Because we want to be that church. The church that Jesus instituted here in Acts chapter 2. But before we can get to that moment when the church begins in Acts chapter 2, we need to finish Acts chapter 1. And I want you to notice that after the disciples were awakened by these messengers and reminded that it was time to get to work, they returned to Jerusalem. They assembled together, and they did two key things. The first thing they did is they waited. I noticed that. Right before Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, we're told that Jesus gave these instructions. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That promise for which they were waiting was identified by Jesus as what we call Holy Spirit baptism, which came to fruition at the start of Acts chapter 2. But what's significant here is that this this group of disciples, these believers, after seeing Jesus ascend into heaven, they obeyed a very uncomfortable order. Jesus' first order for his disciples to obey in his absence is the one order that the vast majority of us struggle to obey. It's the order to wait. Don't you hate waiting? I hate waiting. 
You get stuck in a grocery line behind a bunch of people with full carts. It'll drive you insane. You get stuck in Atlanta traffic at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. You'll go insane. We hate to wait in general. If you go out to eat with Sarah and I, if that wait is too long at the restaurant, we're going somewhere else. Because I've got better things to do with my time than to spend two hours sitting outside a restaurant just so I can wait for them to serve me for another hour. I hate waiting. But sometimes you have to wait. Because sometimes waiting is the only way to benefit from the experience. See, sometimes God calls us to wait because in waiting, we allow God to be in control. And in waiting, we demonstrate our ability to trust Him. And in waiting, we surrender our will to His will. And in waiting, we learn valuable spiritual lessons like contentment and patience and self-control. Sometimes the only way that God can develop within us what we need is by calling us to wait. And I don't know if you realize it or not, but one of the chief assignments of discipleship is waiting. When you think about what your top jobs are as a follower of God, what comes to mind? Typically, we think of, oh, one of my top jobs is to worship Him. And another one of my top jobs is to serve other people. And another one of my top jobs is to share the good news with those who haven't heard it yet. And you think, those, those are my big assignments, but there is another one called waiting. Listen to some of these passages. Paul said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 23 that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 5, Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Titus chapter 2 verses 12 through 13 indicates that in addition to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, we are supposed to be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And then, of course, there's 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 12 through 13 where we are told that we are waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. And we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. One of your chief jobs as a disciple involves waiting. And when you look at these original goers and doers, their first assignment is to go back and wait. And you know what? They were obedient to the assignment. But here's what you need to know about waiting. Waiting doesn't mean you don't do anything. Waiting doesn't mean that you're idle and inactive. There are still things to do while you wait. And that's the other thing we learn from these these disciples here in Acts chapter 1. 
Because not only did they wait, but they also consulted. See, look at what Acts chapter 1 and verse 14 tells us about the activity of these disciples as they return to Jerusalem and wait. It says, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. While they waited, the original goers and doers weren't idle. They didn't sit there doing nothing. They spent their time consulting God. And prayer wasn't the only way they did this. Because the following verses tell us about how Peter stands up and appeals to the Word of God for their next step. Look at what Peter says beginning in verse 16. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now skip down to verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. What is Peter talking about here? It boils down to this. While they were devoting themselves to prayer, Peter recalled a couple of passages from God's Word, particularly Psalm chapter 69 and verse 25 and Psalm chapter 109 and verse 8. And as he reflected on those passages, or even possibly read from a scroll that contained those passages, as he reflected on that in light of all that had happened since the Last Supper, he concluded that those passages were directing the disciples to replace Judas. Now, Jesus didn't say, hey, go back to Jerusalem, wait, and choose a new replacement for Judas. There was not a direct order from Jesus spoken to them about this. They came to this conclusion based on their understanding of God's Word. You see, they're not just consulting God in prayer, they're consulting God through His Word as they wait. Now, if you were to be if you were sitting there reading these texts, you probably wouldn't come to the conclusion that you needed to replace Judas based on Psalm chapter 69 and verse 25 and Psalm chapter 109 and verse 8. But we need to understand why Peter came to that conclusion. The Truth for Today commentary summarizes it well. It says both Psalms tell about the powerful enemies of David. Men in positions of leadership who had turned on David and tried to remove him from the throne. And in these psalms, David prayed that God would remove these men and replace them with godly, dependable leaders. Peter said, in effect, that since David was a type of the Messiah, these passages foreshadowed Judas's betrayal of Jesus and the need to replace Judas. You see, when Peter examined these passages. He saw in David a comparative figure of Christ. And therefore, he saw in the enemies of David a comparative figure for Judas. And as David calls for the replacement of his enemies, Peter 
understood God as instructing them to replace Judas. And God didn't correct him. God didn't intervene and say, no, 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 don't do that. The whole account is quite interesting because it's not driven by a direct instruction from the Lord. And what I mean is that Jesus never specifically told them to choose a replacement for Judas. Instead, this whole process is prompted by conclusions reached from their consultation with God's word. And apparently they weren't wrong. Because when they prayed and consulting God, when they prayed for God to choose the replacement, and they cast lots because that was their only means of, of, of getting God's guidance pre-arrival of the Holy Spirit, God answered. God approved of the process when he chose the individual who would take on that assignment. Now, that's a lot of explanation. Here's the point. Whether we're talking about prayer or we're talking about God's Word, as the disciples waited, they spent their time consulting the Lord. They weren't idle. They weren't doing nothing they did the one thing that they could do in the moment while they waited. That's my brief Cliff Notes overview of what happens throughout Acts chapter 1. And you may be sitting there thinking, all right, so why did we just spend all that time going through that story that seemingly has no application for me. Well, what I want to do with the remainder of our time, as we draw this to a close, is I want to pose two questions from, to you that I think the text demands. The first question I want you to ask yourself today, because what this chapter does is it causes us to examine ourselves. When you really consider the events that are happening here, this text is trying to get us to take a good, hard look at ourselves. And the first question I want you to ponder today is this. Am I numbered among God's family? In Acts chapter 1 and verse 15, you go back to the start of this text we read and that we've been talking about. What you see is, is the, that the group to whom Peter spoke is identified as the brothers. And we're informed that their number is about 120. There are two things worth mentioning about this information. First, notice that, the, that, the, that in the first instance of Jesus' followers being identified with terminology... They are referred to in familial language. They are identified as the brothers. Later, you'll see that in the book of Acts that they're referred to as the way. And then even further down the road, they're going to be finally referred to as Christians. But initially, they're just the brothers. That's family language. Do you remember what Jesus said about his brothers 
In Matthew chapter 12, verse 48 through 50, when someone pointed out that his family wanted to speak to him. This was his response, Matthew chapter 12, verse 48 through 50. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, in order to be among the family of God, you have to do the will of the Father. That's the identifying mark of whether or not you're in the family. And doing the will of the Father includes putting Christ on in baptism. Because if you go over to Galatians chapter 3 and you look at verses 26 through 29, it says that all those who put on Christ through baptism are sons of God and heirs according to the promise. So the question you have to ask yourself is, am I numbered among the family? The only way you can be numbered among God's family is if you're doing God's will. Have you done God's will for your life? Have you done what he's asked you to do to be admitted into his family? Have you confessed that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God? Have you repented of your sins? What we'll see in Acts chapter 2 in our study next week is that when people asked what they had to do, that's the first thing Peter said. And have you been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? Because that's what you have to do to gain admission into the family of God. Are you numbered among the family? And I also want you to notice this. Notice how many people were included in this group. We're told that there were 120. 120. Now that might sound like a decent amount, but what happened to the 5,000 plus people that were following Jesus when he fed them loaves and fishes? What happened to the masses that were laying down palm branches on the, the, on the road as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? The numbers have decreased dramatically. But that shouldn't be too surprising. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 through 14? He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. In other words, Jesus made it clear that his followers were going to be in the minority. And they were going to be choosing a harder road. A life that's not as easy. And as a result, there were going to be few in comparison to those who are on the road to destruction. And if we want to be among the family of God, if we want to be numbered among those who have chosen the narrow gate in the hard way, And we can't follow the masses. Are you numbered 
among the family of God? That's the first question you need to ask yourself today. But there is another question I think you should ask. Particularly if your answer to this first question is yes. And that second question is this. If I met the qualifications of an apostle and I were nominated at this time, would I have been chosen by God? This first event in Acts following the ascension of Christ is centered around the selection of a new apostle. Two guys were nominated, Barsabbas and Matthias. Neither one really appears in Scripture again. These two guys fade from history after this moment. Both of them met the qualifications that Peter mentioned. Both of them were acceptable options in the eyes of the apostles. And deciding between the two of them was turned over to God since he knows the hearts of all men. And in the end, one man was chosen by God and the other was not. Assumedly, this means that the guy who wasn't chosen... Barsabbas, that he was rejected for apostolic consideration twice. Because if you look at the qualifications here, the qualifications are that these guys had to have been following Jesus since John's baptism. That seems to indicate that Barsabbas and Matthias were among the group of disciples from which Jesus made his original selection of apostles. We will never know on this side of heaven why God chose Matthias and rejected Barsabbas. From all accounts of tradition, in history, Barsabbas was a great disciple. But he wasn't chosen by God. Imagine that you were one of those nominees. Imagine that your name was placed before God as a candidate for this position. Obviously, no one living today would fit the qualifications of an apostle, but for the sake of self-examination... Assume that you were qualified. Assume that God was considering you to be the one who would replace Judas. Assume that God was examining your actions, your attitudes, and your heart in order to compare it to other dedicated disciples so that he could determine whether or not you were worthy to serve as a foundation for his church, to use the language of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 and Revelation chapter 21 and verse 14. Imagine, imagine that you were up for this selection. Would God choose you? I imagine that for some listening to this today, that question doesn't resonate. Why would it matter if God chose me or not? If Barsabbas and Matthias were both 
dedicated disciples and, and they both continued to serve the Lord the rest of their life. And they did the will of the Father and they went on to, uh, went, went on to, to live lives pleasing to God. Then what does it matter? In the grand scheme, no, it doesn't matter that much. But don't you want to make your father so proud? Don't you want to live a life wherein God would want to pick you to be his apostle? Don't you remember how great it felt to be chosen? Do you remember when you were in elementary school? You go out to recess and you're picking teams for some game or some sport you're about to play. What's the one thing you didn't want? You didn't want to be picked last. You just wanted to be chosen by somebody. Maybe you can think back to high school. Maybe you can think back to a time when you had uh, your prom, though I'm not necessarily promoting prom here, or your junior-senior banquet, which is what I had in high school. And you just wanted somebody to choose you. Maybe you can think back to that first job application. You graduated college and now you're putting your name out there to find a career and you just want somebody to choose you and to give you that opportunity to prove yourself as an employee. Or maybe you can think back to when you asked your spouse to marry you. Or when your spouse said yes to marrying you. And how great it felt to have someone choose you. There's something special about being chosen. And why would we not want to live a life that would cause our Father to want to choose us. I'm not trying to be degrading of Barsabbas in any way, shape, or form. But when I look at this story, and I know that in it God is choosing someone who stands out, it makes me want to live up to that standard. So that if God had to make such a selection now, He'd be willing to choose me. See, we often examine ourselves by considering whether or not we would go to heaven if Christ came back right now. And that is a necessary question to ask. But it can result in a bare minimum examination. In other words, when you're considering whether or not you would go to heaven, you are ultimately considering whether or not you have met the bare minimum requirements to receive salvation. So I think it's necessary for us to up the ante, if you will. We need to examine not just our salvation status, but also our commitment status. Our maturity status. Our faithfulness status. And we do that by asking whether or not God would choose us as he did Matthias. And we, in so doing, we are essentially examining whether or not we are so dedicated to God that He would deem us worthy of an exalted position. 
This isn't an exercise in self-aggrandizement. This is an exercise in self-evaluation. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and verse 5, that tells us to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith, to test ourselves even. So I challenge you this morning to not just consider whether you are numbered among the family of God, but to also consider whether or not you would have been chosen by God. This morning we offer up these two questions. These two questions born out of a study of the original goers and doers in the aftermath of the ascension of Jesus Christ. If either of these questions has caused you to realize something isn't right in your own life, then we invite you to respond to the invitation this morning. While together we stand and sing. We'll sing it twice, first in unison and then the harmony. I encourage you to come back tonight, 6 o'clock, as we again will worship our Father and God. 876. Jesus, name above all.
this day that you've blessed us with and thank you for the sermon that Kyle delivered for us and um, please help it apply us apply it to our lives as we go about the rest of our week and, and the rest of the year to go and do and um, be part of this family that you've blessed us with and um, thank you for this church that we have here to gather and come to worship you and, and be with that family that you've given us and please help us be the ones try to live our lives that you're the that we're the one that you choose as a an example of a follower of your son, and in his name we pray, amen. <laughs> 